0: of the AAMFT Podcast, where we relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Today, a very requested topic. If you're familiar working with couples in therapy, you know this scenario. The couples come in, they are devitalized, they say this is their last shot. In fact, they might, one or both people might already be hopeless or done with the therapy. What do you do? How do you stay engaged and hopeful in a system that seems not to have much? Who better than to talk about this vital area than last chance couple therapy innovator, Dr. Peter Frankel. Let me tell you a little bit about Peter. He got his PhD in clinical psychology from Duke University. He's been internationally recognized for his innovative contributions to family therapy and his integrative therapeutic palette. He's written over 55 articles and chapters, including two books. He's presented nationally and internationally. He's been recognized by the American Family Therapy Academy. We know that as AFTA, the 2004 Award for Distinguished Contribution to Family Therapy Theory and Practice. And he received AFTA's 2012 Award for Innovative Contribution to Family Therapy. He served on the Board of Directors and is advisory editor to Family Process, and he's been an ad hoc editor for JMFT, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. He's also a former vice president of AFTA. I think you're going to find this very useful, and a lot of times on a podcast you hear an interesting story about our guest, and Peter's certainly an interesting guy. He'll tell you about his dual career focus, both as a helping professional and as a musician, But I really enjoy the podcast where you can listen to it and then come away with some skills and something new to try out in the therapy room. In this case, as you're presented with what we call a last chance couple, this will give you a good start on how to approach those type of clinical situations. As always, we'll be back with some useful resources after our interview. Take it away, Peter. Pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast today by Dr. Peter Frankel. And you know, we're talking about something that's a very requested topic. What happens when you're working, especially with a system, whether it be a couple or family, when one or multiple parts of the system have a very low or sometimes no motivation, what I like to call hostage clients. And Peter is an expert in working what he calls last chance couples. So we're going to talk about that and in general strategies how to work with those lowly motivated individuals, couples, and families that we see. But the first question, thank you so much for being here, Peter, by the way. And the first question we always have, though, we like to know the, the story behind the expert. And sometimes that's more interesting sometimes than the actual uh, the content of what we're talking about. But how did you decide to become a couple therapist? What, what turned you on to the field?
1: Oh well, first of all, great to be here, Eli, and and um, uh, delighted to participate. Honored, in fact. I had a first uh, career, which is still going on, in music. I went to New England Conservatory of Music for uh, percussion and drums, and then decided, uh, for a number of reasons, to switch to regular undergraduate program and major in psychology and philosophy, and then BU, Boston University, and then. After a couple of years working in the field, I, in a psychodynamically oriented outpatient center for chronic mentally ill persons, I was very much a, uh, not a true believer in the psychodynamic perspective and went to Duke University for my PhD in clinical, which at the time, in the early 80s, was generally psychodynamically oriented. Now it's become much more biobehaviorally oriented. But at that time, it was uh, broadly psychodynamic. You know, I, some people got interested in defining themselves as uh, uh, focusing on adult clients, and some found themselves gravitating towards uh, working with teens and others to kids. And I never could decide that because I enjoyed working with adults of all ages and also with teenagers and kids. So I, I couldn't define myself as a child therapist versus a teen therapist versus a adult therapist. So this is leading to answering your question of well, how did I become a family therapist? Um, because when you're a family therapist, you can work with all ages at once, and that was very appealing to me, and that solved that problem.
0: How did you uh, resolve the you know psychodynamic, which it sounds like you were passionate about, where the problem lies? Within the person, and when we think of systems, the problem lying between people. How did you uh, integrate those two very different perspectives?
1: Well, uh, in my work with kids, uh, doing, according to my supervisors, very good, you know, psychodynamically oriented play therapy and helping kids who are acting out at school and at home express their feelings, playing with toy soldiers and so forth. And then the kids would, uh, you know, they liked me too, and then they go back to school and beat the heck out of somebody again, or get beaten up, or have fights with their parents. And I was thinking, hmm, this isn't really getting to the behavior that's a problem here. And secondly, it, at that time, we were still operating in the old child guidance model, where if you were working with a kid, you were not really supposed to talk with a parent. And I just didn't understand that. It made no sense because it was clear that something needed to happen in the between, between the, the, you know a mother and a, and a son or a daughter and her mother or father, whatever. And, and yet the, the guidelines for doing therapy and for communicating about what was going on were rather rigid and made no sense to me. So I had a big question mark about doing individual therapy with kids and teens. And also, working with adults, often I was hearing about their difficulties in a marriage or other intimate relationship. So all of that just raised a lot of questions for me. And I pushed a little bit with my supervisors uh, back at, at Duke. And Got permission to you know, to break the rules and meet with mother and son, for instance. I'm thinking of one case that I actually wrote about in 2005 in the Psychotherapy Networker in an article called uh, "Whatever Happened to Family Therapy." There's a case description there that was a turning point for me, and I, you know, I, I met with them and you know pretty quickly started to solve the problems just working on their relationship and helping the mom become. More effective in parenting and helping the kid recognize the the ways he could change what he does with his peers and with his mom and have better outcomes for him. So, I also same thing. I, I worked with a gentleman who's probably twenty two at that time who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, was working with him individually and you know thought, geez, I really need to bring the mom in to this. So, without getting into all the details of the case, it was in working with mother and son that I was able to help this gentleman launch into a productive adult life. But without that it was just, you know, individual work and not frankly going in the direction that needed to happen. So I had no training though, really, except some supervision, but no theoretical training at that time in family therapy. And it was when I went on internship at Bellevue Hospital in New York that I, like the rest of us interns, was assigned to a year-long track in family and couple therapy. And it's like I was home. That's how I felt. I felt like I had finally found the perspective that made most sense to me. Um, It made most sense to me because you could work on the relationships, not just on the individual and their internal life. Uh, It made sense to me because I could work with people of all Ages and it made sense to me because it was a much more strengths based, resilience based approach. I had also had a lot of trouble over time with the felt like sort of relentless pathologizing of people. Not that people don't struggle with serious pathology at times, and we certainly need to name those problems but I always was more inclined to looking at the strengths that people bring both individually and in their relationships. So I just, and also f- uh, back to the music, I started talking about how as a musician and a drummer, and there's a lot of, for me, similarities between being a good family therapist and a couple therapist and being a drummer in a band. Um, they had very similar feel for me and I like a more active approach to doing therapy.
0: Well, we'll definitely weave in the musical metaphor as we go. So once you think systemically, it's really hard to think any other different way. So even though you got trained in a way that was very different, it was the actual work that you were doing, as you write about in that 2005 uh, Networker article, it was the actual work that you were doing that, that helped you gravitate towards what we're talking about today. Because I always tell people it is great when a couple or a family comes in with the same level of motivation. I call those turnkey clients. They're in the, the action stage of change. But rarely is that the case. In the sense that one person might be there uh, ready to go uh, and another person, they're only there out of duress to uh, pacify their partner or maybe their parent. So what we're talking about today is is low or mo- no motivation clients? How did you get interested in starting writing and working with those type of systems?
1: Well, Eli, in a sense, it's because of what you just said. That I, I, as my, you know, good reputation as a, as a couple therapist developed, I got referred more and more uh, couples who had already seen one, two, maybe three. In fact, my record now is five previous couple therapists, and we're on the brink of divorce or it's non-married equivalent, you know, um, separation and dissolution of the, re- the relationship. So the longer you stay in this field, the more, and and have some success in helping people, the more you're going to be getting challenging cases and, and couples that are really in the deep water. And so uh, I hadn't really found at that time when i started working with couples like this in 1999 or so actually earlier uh that much written on what do you do with what bill doherty also uh, you know very much an expert in this area uh has called mixed agenda couples you know where one partner does want to stay in the relationship and the other not uh, and then where both partners are very much considering leaving the relationship so i I started to really th- think through what I, was, what I was doing that would help couples with at least one partner who's low in motivation uh, or both uh, start to take some chances.
0: In, in, and we've had Bill Doherty on the show, and he is a, a, a great uh, guest. And certainly this discernment therapy has changed the way we think about couples therapy because uh, some couples therapists... Uh, If they're new to the field or they just haven't experienced what we're talking about here, they assume both people want to save the relationship. And if you go into that and you don't assess client motivation at the beginning or you assume erroneously they both have the same motivation, you get yourself into big trouble. You're not going to get off the ground. So talk about how you assess Motivation, and we're talking about couples here, so let's just go with that. How do you assess couple motivation at the outset and in initial session?
1: Well, maybe it's because I'm a New York therapist, but you don't have to use a lot of fancy techniques with New York couples. <laughs> Generally speaking, they tell you straight out. You know, one of the, the things that that I find very often is couples coming in where one partner says, "As far as I'm concerned, this is the only session I'm going to come to." unless i see some kind of actual change we've been in previous couple of therapies nothing really happened we just You got talk. 50
0: minutes to fix us go now
1: That's that's right yeah so so i, I don't use any fan, fancy assessment tools to to assess uh, motivation i just listen carefully and really take seriously the partner who is extremely ambivalent about continuing in the relationship and in even giving the therapy a try i'm only here one might say because my lawyer, I've already c- gotten a lawyer, and, and the lawyer said, well, give it you know, one session. I'll be honest, I'm only here because my lawyer said it should come to one session. You know, so it's it's pretty straight out there. And the other partner, it's often the case, by the way, in heterosexual couples, what I have generally found. You know, unfortunately, we we still have certain constructions about relationships where women end up, you know, feeling that they need to protect and keep the relationship together, and guys will often rather neglectful about the quality of the relationship. And it's only at the moment where the woman says, all right, I've had it with whatever the issue is, and I'm out of here. And then suddenly the guy is saying, no, 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 you know, come back. Now I'm ready to try. And she is feeling like, well, too little, too late. And that's the situation we're in. Now, it doesn't always go in that gendered way. And I also, by the way, work with same-sex couples uh, who are in the last chance situation as well. Uh, but typically, you, there's there's one partner who has been trying for quite a while to get the other to improve their intimacy, their communication, what have you, and they just have not come to the table to do that. And now with the threat of the relationship dissolving, they're suddenly awake, and that is not convincing for the person.
0: You talk about these four typologies of couples, Peter, that present a couples therapy. Talk a little bit about that. And- sure. How each one of them uh, manifests is, uh, a little differently.
1: Uh, you know, the first is the classic high-conflict couple where they're engaging in all of the, you know, well-documented uh, destructive patterns that Gottman and Markman and Stanley and others have have uh, uh, you know documented in their research over 45 plus years: escalation and withdrawal and uh, invalidation, negative interpretations and. Uh, Turning away rather than turning towards and all all of those kinds of patterns that I'm sure our listeners are familiar with. And uh, these couples sometimes have been in a previous couple therapy where I think Bill Doherty would say a bad couple therapy is a marvelous article years ago in the Networker 2002 on bad couples therapy, where he talks about you know, the, the therapist will just let the partners argue uh, interminably the same way they do at home. And at some point, if they're smart, the couple's... We'll turn to the therapist and say why are we paying you for this you
0: know i can I mean, do that at home for free i can yeah. do
1: this for free yeah
0: you get you get indoctrinated into the system and i think that's one of the challenges that's so difficult for beginning couples therapists both you and i are, are trainers as well and train many couples therapists is that if you let a couple you need to see that cycle but if you see it once Pretty much the other cycles look like that. And if you don't have a way to intervene in a high-conflict couple situation like that, you really get sucked in and indoctrinated into the system. And you talk about the couple losing hope, the therapist who also becomes demoralized very quickly if you can't break up one of those cycles, which is hard for beginning therapists uh, to feel like they can be direct and to break up that high-conflict sequence.
1: Right. So it's very important to take charge, interrupt that, as you say, once... Uh, once you've seen the couple do it, uh, I, I tell my students at City College and they used to at, at Ackerman, you, you only need about three minutes maximum to get a sense of how this particular couple is enacting those classic problem patterns, and you don't want to let it go on further than that. And that's a moment where you want to say the, to the couple, look, I have some very well-researched communication skills and problem-solving skills that I can teach you, uh, would you be interested in that? But before actually I get into to how I introduce uh, t- techniques, let's just go through these four, you know, the, the four types, and then we'll talk about the particular challenges of creating a therapeutic um, a contract with a last-chance couple, because that's that's what's really quite different in working with low-motivation couples and last chance couples so okay so our our first typology the high
0: conflict yes number one
1: right uh and then then you have uh couples where one or both partners have uh violated uh, important values uh, of the relationship and of the other partner so this is affairs of course uh violence or anything on the violence continuum and i have a no aggression policy in terms of working with couples and I explain that even if someone has not literally threatened to or actually physically harmed the other person that there are subtle forms of uh, intimidation that are silencing to the other uh, partner that are on the same continuum. Uh, also you know I as I think you know, I write a lot about time issues in couples. so when you've got one partner, who is demanding punctuality at all costs and kind of threatening about it and questions when a partner comes home five minutes late and gets intimidating about that, to me that is, and I think based on research as well, that it's on the same continuum of an, uh, an abuse of power, you know, which can go all the way to domestic violence. So I, I work very carefully to discern those kind of patterns uh, and... Uh, uh, and correct them with, with couples so that there's an equitable, non-power-dominating kind of pattern in, in, the, in the couple. So so affairs, abusive behavior, gambling, misuse of money, those kinds of things where the other partner is feeling that basic values of uh, fidelity and safety and so forth are being violated. The, the third type of pattern uh, is what I've called in my work on couples in time, a couple's where the partners have very different projective life, projected life chronologies for the, one another. That is, you know, one partner wants to have kids, and the other is saying, I'm not ready, and it's, you know, years are going by, months and years are going by, and uh, say a woman's biological clock is ticking, and she's making that clear that she really wants to get on with this, and he keeps delaying to get more education or to develop, you know... Um, her career. And so you've got couples that are out of sync in terms of when they want certain things in their lives to happen. And that, as I say, can be about um, having a, a first child. It can be about something like moving from the city to the suburbs. It can be about reaching a certain level of financial security. So couples where partners have these dyssynchronies in where their personal timeline is going, and what they hope for. That's the third category. And then the fourth, and frankly most difficult, is a sort of low passion couple where they typically, but not always, have had first a period of high conflict and now are so not just conflict avoidant, but one another avoidant, that they have a hard time imagining and generating any kind of pleasure with each other and just feel extremely hopeless about the possibility of joint pleasure. You know, I, I should say while I'm on that top, another mistake that many couple therapists make, particularly in this last chance scenario, is that they sequence the work as focused entirely for weeks or even longer on just teaching communication skills, problem solving skills, getting people to avoid destructive conflict and so forth without attending to the Bunsen burner, as I call it, of the relationship, the pleasure system. And I've developed some low-cost, high-yield techniques for couples in terms of trying out pleasure, even while they are still in pain and still having questions about whether they're going to have a future together. Because I think, as I often joke with couples, you know, you didn't you didn't meet at that bar or in that class and look at each other and say, you know, this seems like a person I could effectively solve problems with for the rest of my life. You, you, you were probably physically attracted, intellectually attracted, spiritually attracted. You were excited to be with that, that person and hoping for a life of, of joint pleasure. If all we do is teach people how to be lean, mean, problem-solving machines, we're not really going to help people figure out whether to stay together because people don't want to just be with someone who's an effective problem-solver with them. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, of course it does. You want to be able to connect to the vitality and the passion, especially in these couples that have been the the fourth typology that have been stably disconnected, as I like to call it, where both of them are pretty much hopeless. They made the appointment, but neither one of them really can grasp... Things getting any better? How do you initially engage them to do the work?
1: Yeah, what what I find is that if we if we focus too quickly on trying to get last chance couples who've had m- years usually of very unhappy time with each other, if we try to get them to to unearth their positive memories and so forth, too much we focus too much on that, they 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 can get the feeling that we don't get how bad off they are. Like we have to validate that they are really in a tough place and be able to sit with that and not try to essentially cheer them up, which is how they, how they may be experiencing that approach. You know, t- tell me about times when it's gone well. A lot of couples will just say, can't remember or irrelevant right now because we're really in tough shape. So I, as I said, I have couples usually coming in saying, you know, this session has to produce something or else I'm out of here. And so my understanding, and it perhaps it's wrong, and I don't want to get too much into a comparison with Bill's and his colleagues' wonderful discernment uh, approach, but I, I, as I understand it, the couple makes a kind of contract to have a few sessions to decide whether to formally get into uh, couple therapy, and there's a lot more individual meetings and so forth. My Again, maybe it's a New York City thing, but I've got couples (laughs) who are really demanding change or the prospect of change right away. Many of them would not sign on for a longer period of figuring out whether to get to work on changing things. They want to see change right away. So I say to them, well, since the two of you still are not completely convinced that you want this relationship to end, I think you know, as as a empirically based couple therapist, as I am, what we need to do is some experiments in possibility. And this is one of the key concepts in, in my work with Last Chance Couples, is that we're going to enter what I introduce as a liminal space. It's a term that comes from Victor Turner in anthropology and Evan Ember Black and uh, Janine Roberts and Robert Whiting wrote about it in their work on rituals. How do we carve out A period of time, and really it can be session to session, not even a period of six to eight weeks, but just this week. Can we create a period where you're not deciding definitively to get divorced and you're not deciding to stay together? We're just going to enter this space of trying something out and seeing what happens. So couples are often quite relieved by that, but especially if you have a couple where one is very keen on leaving and the other really wants to stay. Um, It takes a bit of of the pressure off of the person who's thinking about leaving because they're not feeling like the therapist is trying to subtly keep them in the relationship. I'm acknowledging straight away that they may decide next week that it's over. But I do suggest that we try some things and see where it goes. Now, here's the kicker, and this is very important. I always say this in the first session to that person or both persons who are thinking about leaving, even if things improve, we're going to do some experiments and I have a, you know, a whole toolkit of things and ideas that I think can help you. But even if things improve, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to stay. That is a very important perspective to share with a last chance couple because Paradoxically, the person who's thinking about leaving may feel trapped by progress. It might feel like, uh uh-oh, if things get better, if we learn how to communicate better, if our sensuality and sexuality improves, I won't be able to make the case for leaving. Even if I still feel like, even though things are better, maybe better than they ever were, I just don't want to be in this relationship. I've lost that love and feeling as the righteous brothers.
0: Right. The only thing you're asking them to do is to commit to this experiment of possibilities. As you say, you're not telling them, even if the experiment goes well, they have to stay. So you're meeting them where they're at and you're doing no arm twisting, which is essential to get that buy-in. How early yeah. in that first session are you going to, you know, because people think of a 50, 60 minute time limit. How early are you going to move to laying that out there?
1: I would say, you know, I mean, obviously in a, first session, you're spending time listening and witnessing each partner's suffering and their ideas about staying or going. You know, I, I, I would say that that's about uh, 20 to 30 minutes of the session. And, you know, the other thing to say, particularly to, uh, you know, trainees who are new to the field, they might think, oh, my God, how can you possibly hear their entire story of pain in 30 minutes and assess, like, you know, this long rich history of suffering of what's going on. Well, the thing about couples in a last chance situation is that they have in a sense inadvertently practiced these problem patterns for for months and years, right? So so they have become quite efficient, it's sad to say, but quite efficient in enacting these painful patterns. And you don't have to hear Every darn instance where one did this, the other, or they fought or, you know, all the different things they fought about for 20 years. You don't need to hear that. We're in systemic work, as you well know, Eli, we're focused more on the process than on the content. Sal Minuchin, who was my great teacher, always said, you know, in his inimitable way, he said he always is happy when a couple is coming in and they're talking about how to do the laundry properly or whether to uh, use chicken with the uh, chicken breast with the bone in or the bone out, and they're having a incredibly intense arguments about things like that, because the content isn't as important as opposed to, let's say, an affair or wild spending of money without the other one knowing whether there's some real ramifications. The more, you know, we want to look at the process, and unfortunately, distressed couples like this are very efficient in causing each other pain. You, you get it quickly. So you don't have to, spend like two or three sessions finding out what the problems have been. And I definitely would say, uh, generally speaking, and, and everything I'm saying is generally speaking, I'm not going to be exploring a family of origin in great depth in the first few sessions because there is such a demand on the part of at least one partner to see something change. And good family of origin work with genograms and all that takes time, right? And frankly, with a last-chance couple – you start exploring one's sources of sensitivity, one partner's sources of sensitivity, and that can get, unfortunately, misused by the other partner who will say, like, you see, you're the problem because you had such a messed up family and you're imposing your you know family issues on me. So it's, it's actually a little risky to go to that place in the first few sessions. I'm instead privileging action. It's all about what would be, and this goes back to the basics of... Systems, you know, back to the MRI school. What is the smallest significant change that we can enact in a system to start the ball spinning into a virtuous cycle, as opposed to a, a downward going vicious cycle? What would be one thing that each of you could do this week, or even right now, right now, right now in front of me, an enactment that would start to make you think that maybe this therapy will be useful, and that maybe you would want to come back. Let me say something about that. This is very interesting. Like in you know, in couple therapy where it's not last chance, at the end of a session, what do we do? We, we bring our, out our appointment book or our phone or whatever. We say, okay, so when do you want to meet next week? You don't say that in a last chance couple situation in a first session. You would instead say, so how did you feel this session went? Do you think this is uh, something you want to try next week? Do you need to think about it this week? before we commit to a next session. It's a very tentative approach to scheduling the next session. That's a subtle thing, but it can be very important to the partner who is extremely anxious about being trapped in the therapy and trapped with their partner.
0: Correct, because there's no arm twisting, and then when they decide to come back and accept this experiment of possibilities, they've done it on their own volition. So it's important not only for that partner; it's also important in the therapist building that alliance. Very in couple therapy, as you know, it's easy to have a split alliance, especially with couples like this. So, them owning it is is half the battle, so to speak. So, okay, so how do you frame this experiment of possibilities as far as how much? prescriptive directive you are about what that should look like and how much input you take from the clients and the couple
1: right so you know i'm going to say to them that since they have come here not for divorce divorce counseling like you know or mediation which i don't do specifically i mean if they're already at that point i will send them to a mediator but if they're still Trying to figure out whether to stay or go, I'll say, you know, as a, as a researcher as well as a clinician, I think we need to generate some data. You know, we need to take this therapy that we're doing and treat it as an experiment in possibility, meaning uh, we're going to try some new things or old things that maybe didn't work before, but we'll try to re-energize them and see where it leads, how you feel, whether it engenders more hope. And so forth. So, you know, certainly with a high-conflict couple, and frankly with most of the couples that I work with, I'm I'm always going to suggest, but not impose, suggest spending um, a couple of sessions learning communication skills. And I trained with Howard Markman and Scott Stanley back in the '90s uh, in Prep, so I tend to use the Prep materials, which have a ton of research behind them. Speaker listener technique and problem solving. Uh, technique and, and their idea of hidden issues. So I, you know, I have a whole module. I ran, established, and ran a prep program at NYU Medical Center, uh, in the Family Studies Unit for twelve years back in the nineties and early two thousands. So I'm very familiar with that uh, approach, and I will suggest this. And couples are usually game for that. So that's that's a frequent uh, first uh, thing, and I can teach. The problem patterns inform them about escalation, withdrawal, negative interpretations, and invalidation and various flavors of escalation pretty quickly. I also do bibliotherapy in the sense that I will send my couple's chapters out of my book that summarize that. I'll recommend, you know, the Fighting for Your Marriage book. But, you know, I've got materials, handouts and stuff that people can read uh, between sessions to get into more depth about the research On this, and I'm not going to go into a whole thing about how I teach that, but basically, that's one thing. Another is, of course, an apology ritual. So, when there's been a significant hurt by one partner uh, of the other, or if both partners have been, you know, hurt each other in ways, I recommend that the partner who's Seriously hurt the other. Enact an apology ritual in which, let's say, it's an affair, and affairs are complex. But this is one important piece of the of work with this. Look, you know, Samantha. Let's say Roger and Samantha, I'm making these names up. Samantha, I want you to know that I know that what I've done by having this affair has really hurt you. I know that across the day, you may find yourself thinking and feeling about it and having intrusive thoughts about it and I explain the traumatic aspects of affairs uh, And I just want you to know as we start our day how sorry I am for the effects of what I did and of course for what I did and that I'm committed to not doing that again and to repairing our relationship and I have the couple do this uh, Apology ritual right there in front of me with, in their own words and then every day on a daily basis, the person who's affaired on the other is going to do an apology in this way. And the other doesn't have to forgive, doesn't even have to say thank you, just listens. And that's a, that's a, a small but, you know, you can imagine quite significant little activity that can happen in a very first session and across the week. And that's an experiment in possibility. They're understood in terms of the impact of that, that their partner is going to step up and at least for a few seconds every day witness and share they're suffering because of this affair.
0: There are some things that you have to have in place as far as safety to do the experiment. So if the person is actively, think of Don Balcom's work where he calls the person is, is committing the infidelity the participating partner and the person that's been cheated on the injured partner. So let's say the participating partner is still acting out with a third party or parties. It would seem like it would very be very be hard to set up these possibilities that could lead to hope and, and reignite the relationship unless there was a containment around that. So how do you set the ground to have the ex- the conditions so the experiment has the best ability? Kind of thinking of you, again, as the the drummer, keeping the beat, matching the tempo. So part of your job is to set the ideal conditions for the experiment to take place. How, how do you do that?
1: Uh, I'll say that, that in almost every case that I've worked in over 30 years, the person who was doing the affair has stopped at this point. And they provide data to to show that, especially these days, what's going on with texting and so forth, that that it has stopped. And now they want to repair their relationship with the affaired-upon partner. So when that's not the case, and I learn, let's say, in an individual session, that someone is still in touch with the affair partner... I say, look, my position is, and I think others may disagree, I I can't work productively with the two of you on this unless you, at the very least, take a real break and a a vacation from that relationship. You're going to have to stop that while we're doing our work. So, yeah, I definitely
0: yeah. agree with that. Other yeah. other things probably to maximize the experiment not to do, I, I always tell couples if they are to, to fully get the most out of the last chance or the experiment, you can't be doing things or talking to people that kind of kill any momentum or hope. Meaning if you have a family member or friend that wants you to exit that relationship, it's a very, it's a very mixed message, especially if you rely on them for support or if you've already as we call, lawyered up and gone and seek legal counsel and nothing against lawyers. But I think they have a very different outlook on relationships than couples therapists trying to save relationships do. So what else do you tell them to avoid doing to maximize the chance the experiment will work?
1: Yeah, well, let's take that instance, actually, because that comes up often. I would say if you've already contacted a lawyer, I would say, can you please make a commitment this week or and we take it week by week, sometimes, or if they can make a longer commitment for the time being, while we're working to stop progress of any sort with your lawyer and take a break and just explain to them that you're giving this one more try and you know stop that process because again, if they're if they're starting to really build their case while we're trying to try to build the relationship, that's that's going across purposes. So it's the same thing. And when it comes to like other family members. Same thing, setting a boundary. Uh, Like, let's say, you know, um, a husband's mother is saying, oh, you should leave her. Can you really take a break from that for the next week? And I do take it week by week until we start to gain some momentum. Can you take a break for a week? Most people are willing to take a break for a week on things like that. So, you know, with the understanding that we have to really try some things out without other mitigating relationships and circumstances. Now, the, one of the other key things that I want to emphasize here is when, when you're teaching couples communication skills or having them do what I call 60-second pleasure points. I've written about getting couples to try doing moments of pleasure across the day. You know where the pleasure activity is 60 seconds or less. This it's technique called the 60-second pleasure point. And I have couples brainstorm with me what are fun, pleasurable, or even sensual activities, not necessarily sexual, but sensual, like things to see and things to hear and taste, where the activity is 60 seconds or less. So it's a pretty low-cost, low-energy investment, but potentially high-yield activity for a couple that doesn't believe that there's any possibility of pleasure in there. In their relationship, they try the proverbial date night and all they end up doing is fighting over the food and things like that. So, you know, how to help people uh, try these things and almost inevitably a couple in a last chance moment will say, well, it all makes sense. The communication skills, the pleasure points, the whatever, but it feels so artificial. And I'll say, uh, so basically I developed... Uh, what I call the creative relational movement approach to change, which very much privileges action as the conduit to changing feeling. You know, traditional psychotherapy, psychodynamic, humanistic, whatever, tends to focus on understanding people's feelings, understanding their thoughts, cognitive behavioral too, and with that greater understanding and maybe some change in feeling, people then will act Uh, in different ways. Well, my experience over all these years is I've rarely ever seen that happen in psychotherapy generally. You know, that understanding and insight are very important, but um, action needs to often precede understanding and insight. In other words, they have to try new things that will potentially generate new feelings and thoughts
0: about one another. In order to change the thinking and the feeling, we've gotta change the doing first. Part of that's this right. experimenting, doing something different. If insight led to change, then uh, a lot, uh, most couples therapists I know wouldn't be needed. So I'm, you're preaching yeah. to the choir here. You gotta be willing to do something different. That's for sure.
1: Right, and that's where the experiments and possibility come in. So, so I have five principles to this creative relational movement approach. One is, just what I said, insight does not automatically lead to new action. Thinking about time, when people talk about, oh, we've had such a difficult past, and they're interacting in the present moment in exactly the same way that they've done over quite a long period in the past, I will often say to them, you know, you don't really have a past yet. And they'll look at me quizzically. (laughs) I say, well, it's like one continuous present you know, that has been going on for years. But in terms of experientially, you're not actually able to say, we used to do that because you're still doing it. In fact, the past and the present are one. And so the only way that you're going to be able to actually have a past, not just in terms of years, you know, uh, spent together, that's obvious, that's that past, but experientially, it might as well be the same day. It's like Groundhog Day. You're getting up and you're fighting in the same way or you're ignoring each other's needs in the same way as you have for years. So it's basically one continuous present. So that's where trying new things has the capacity to bifurcate time so that people start to have a painful past that they can look upon and a more promising present towards the future. That makes sense.
0: Yes that that makes sense for for sure. Okay. Uh, you, you need to get their their buy in. Tell us these other now four principles.
1: Yeah, well they they you know sometimes when you introduce an idea like that, people go like, "Wow, like we never thought of it that way," and that is a motivator in itself. Like, yeah, we do we do want this to be in the past, so we're going to try some things to make a new present. So the another principle. Is very important. We've been talking about motivation. Uh, So, principle two sustained daily motivation is not necessary for change. You know, I'm a drummer. I've been playing drums almost all my life since I was age 10 and, you know, practicing most days. I can tell you, you know, we drummers are supposed to uh, practice what's called the rudiments every day rolls and flams and all these sort of basic moves to keep our hands limber and strong. It's not like I wake up in the morning and say, oh, Pete, can't wait to do my rudiments. It's not how it goes. And the same is true with exercise. The same is true with any kind of activity that we do, including going to work. I mean, how many people wake up every day bound out of bed and say, can't wait to get to the office? I mean, I love my work, but it's not like every day I'm motivated. So motivation in this model comes from the action, that as we start to do it, even if we don't feel like it. And by doing it, you start seeing immediately some positive results, and the motivation or the the excitement for continuing it comes from that. So that is an idea that is quite reassuring to a couple where the motivation is low. Like, we don't even have to be highly motivated. And I I have to tell you, Eli, unless unless I missed something, when I wrote that article on Last Chance Couple Therapy, I figured... So it's such a it's such a truism, really, that couples who are more motivated, or individual patients, frankly, who are more motivated have better therapeutic outcomes. There's very little research that shows that, actually. There's an actually an interesting emerging literature on the credibility of therapists, the perceived credibility, not and you're a common factors researcher, so you know this. There's this literature on the the perceived credibility of the therapist, but there's also an interesting literature on the perceived credibility of the therapy itself. That is, that the therapy and what you're proposing makes sense to them. And I yeah, you're argue- talking
0: about the uh, the task. People think a therapeutic alliance just I like my therapist with this warm, empathic feeling. And don't get me wrong, the bond dimension is important. But what you're talking about is the task dimension. Is the way I've set up this therapy a good fit for the two of you? are we going to, the means and how the therapy is structured a good fit. So by rolling with their resistance and uh, letting them buy into the experiment of possibilities on their own, you're, you know, and you're also debunking some of these myths that they think couples therapy has to be, you have to be motivated every day. Uh, You have to be able to undo the past. I mean, it's like, Uh, yeah, I mean, you're speaking to the choir here with a lot of our listeners, but I think why that article uh, released in 2019 was so impactful. Hey, you're a good writer, number one, and it's written not in jargony, uh, like an academic article. It's written as, here, you're going to go into your session at five o'clock tonight in the couple, and this is how you're going to work. So give us some other of those principles and some other really tools that, Couple or ther- couples therapists can go and use with their low-motivated clients.
1: You got it. Okay, so let's go through these quickly. Principle three is that change initially feels artificial and even irrational. In a last chance couple, where they been angry towards one another for so long and things haven't worked for so long, it can not only feel artificial to try new communication skills or little ways of having pleasure or, you know, little ways of turning towards versus turning away, you know, as Gottman might say. It can literally feel irrational. Like, given our history of pain, it makes no sense for us. And that's a beautiful moment because you can say, yes, therapy is almost by definition irrational. Like, we're going to try to make things better when the two of you aren't even sure you want to be together. But let's see if we can do it. Um, And of course, it's going to feel artificial. And then I'll ask partners... Do you play any sports or music or any kind of behavioral thing, (laughs) action-oriented thing, where you had to learn the skills, whether it's golfing or tennis or music or painting? Everything that we try new, even a new software program, feels artificial and awkward initially. This may seem, I'm sure this seems obvious to you, Eli, but for many couples, they resist doing something like the speaker-listener technique because it initially feels artificial. So we want to normalize that, that the change process will feel artificial at first and with practice more natural. It's a simple idea, but believe me, uh, it is extremely helpful and needs to be named. I guess uh, principle four is this one we've already talked about, the importance of non-binding creative experiments in possibility. We're going to try new things, We're going to enter that liminal space, we're going to give it a shot, and then evaluate the data as to whether these were encouraging things to do. And principle five, which actually I added, although it's implicit, I added after writing that uh, paper uh, for Family Process, uh, that we have to link change efforts to daily and weekly temporal rhythms. That is, people can see that the speaker-listener technique makes sense, that the you know, 60-second pleasure point, way of generating more pleasure, makes sense, whatever specific tools we're going to offer them. But unless you have people, put, it, frankly, put it in their calendar, it's probably not going to happen. Like, the idea has to be operationalized in time. And, of course, I didn't put that in because I've been writing about time for so many years, but it's just like, yeah, of course, duh. So the, the, the point of this is this is a theory of change that we share transparently with our clients. You know, I, I think we often don't really explain to people how change is going to happen. You know, how, how's it going to work? We get a little, you know, certainly psychodynamic. My training was you don't answer questions like that. You just sort of let the process evolve.
0: Well, you mentioned you know? MRI earlier too about, you know, it used to be thought if you went into the black box, that was a bad thing that, that inhibited change. But no, the idea of being transparent and explaining it is all part of getting that buy-in. And and as you were just talking, I thought of the word intentional. You have to make both the therapy and the time out of the room as far as the couples engaging in this experiment. It has to be intentional.
1: Absolutely. Very important word. Again, Bill Doherty, who's generated so much wonderful stuff in our field, uh, has talked quite a bit about the intentional family and intentionality in couple. I think it's so important. You know, actually, uh, I'll say, Bill, who i really, as it's probably obvious, admire so much. He and I had some interesting conversations back and forth around coping with the pandemic. And one of the things, I have a paper coming out probably next week in Family Process, co-authored with my colleague Young Cho at Lewis and Clark University. Uh, And it's called Reaching Up, Down, In, and Around, Couple and Family Coping During COVID uh, Pandemic. And basically, I'm seeing this time uh, as a time that's very much existential in, in in a very profound way, people are worried about dying. They're worried about their loved ones dying. They're worried about where society is going, and we're you know stuck in our houses and apartments and not free to access the usual sorts of diversion and pleasure and all sorts of things are compromised. And I think it's forcing families and couples to look to their broader values whether those are religious values spiritual values just uh, ethical secular values and think about what is life really about and so you know as i've thought about that and counseled couples and families during this difficult time really encouraging them to think about you know what is their life about it what is their relationship about it what is the basis of it and and engaging words like love and compassion and patience, because, and and this has led me back to thinking about working with couples and families in non-pandemic times. That is, I think one of the elements that we often ignore in our work with, with couples and families are these higher values. I mean, some have made a pitch for that, Bill being one, others certainly from a Walsh's wonderful edited book on spiritual resources and family therapy and all the great chapters in that book you know, and others have done that. Mona Fishbane has, has written about this in terms of the Martin Buber work. I know there's a lot to, we could talk about with that, but I, I have found myself as part of working with last chance couples, looking for ways to help people step back and think about what, what are the larger human values that they want to enact in their relationship? Because, you know, honestly, if people don't, have at least a hope of loving each other again (laughs) and being loving with each other and compassionate with each other, enacting these broader values, then they may not enact, they may not do the speaker-listener technique or they may not do any of those uh, pleasure-mounting suggestions or anything like that. Oh, yeah, another one of those
0: common factors. uh, For sure, hope. We could uh, talk about that forever. And I think hope is the antidote in some ways, to this low motivation or these devitalized couples. So in order to be hopeful, my friend Dick Schwartz talks about being a hope merchant in the sense that you have to buy it to sell it. So you, Peter, you have been doing this work for so long. When you're in the room like that, you're also very authentic. As far as self of the therapist, how do you engage your own hope centers? And how do you become a hope merchant for these clients that you're in the room with if they're very uh, pessimistic about their future?
1: Well, that's a great question, and, and I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll relate it back uh, to my soul as a drummer, you know, that I bring a lot of positive energy to the work I do. I, I do bring in this idea that even couples on their 13th hour with each other can turn things around, and that's based not on blind hope, but on empirical hope. I've seen it happen. Most of the couples I work with end up uh, not only together, but really quite happy with each other again. And I and I always keep in mind also the uh, what's said to be the translation of the Chinese calligraphy character of a crisis, which is that it's a combination of danger and opportunity. And sometimes it takes a couple, and sometimes it takes a whole country and a society and a world, frankly, as we're in now to to see. In a crisis, of course, great danger, of death, of of dissolution, uh, of disruption, as also an opportunity to rebuild in creative ways. and And I think if you if you come into the work with a couple, first of course, deeply empathic to each other, they have often very different points of view on the relationship. And I explained to them that partners often have very different ideas about how to solve their problems and what a life should be. And I often joke in my uh, Boston accent, because I did grow up in the Boston area, I'll say, and I usually get a laugh when I do this, uh, you know, if you wanted to marry a mirror, you can go to Target right now, because they got a sale on full-length mirrors for nineteen ninety-nine plus tax. Very uh, wonderful uh, 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 sale going on there. And people will laugh, and I'll say, but seriously, you know, you picked each other in part for your differences. Research shows that couples pick each other both for differences and similarities. And now those differences, whether they be one being fast-paced, one being slow-paced, one being more conservative, one more liberal about spending, sexual preferences, all these things, tendency to see things in a more positive way, tendency to see things sometimes in a more uh, uh, problem-centered way. These differences were part of what brought you together. And that's later in the therapy where family of origin and sometimes culture of origin work also plays a role. We try to understand how a person consciously or unconsciously picked the other and what they were trying to repair from their families of origin or just their temperament or all sorts of things, right? That's a whole nother Webinar or or, uh, podcast here.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've done, we've covered so much this hour. Uh, Quickly, I am curious. We've had Bill O'Hanlon on the show, and he is now spending part of the year in Nashville as a singer songwriter. So we've talked about how the vitality and the parallels between music and psychotherapy. How do you integrate your musical identity into your work?
1: Well, okay, a few different ways. One is as a as a drummer, my old teacher Freddie Buddha, Fred Buddha, uh, up in Boston, who very sadly passed away uh, in a few months ago, was really like a dad to me. He used to say the drummer's role is to lay down a carpet for everyone else to walk on. And I always think about that as a therapist. That my fundamental role is to help invite people into a space, literal and figurative, where they can feel comfortable, where they can feel affirmed, where they feel Uh, safe to solo (laughs) where they feel supported by me that's one piece the other is as we know one of the common factors uh, of successful uh, couple therapy is structuring right we structure the time we look for moments where as we talked about earlier where the conversation is going into a very destructive way and we stop it so as a drummer we do those kind of things if we see that uh a soloist is going on too long, there's certain things that you do as a drummer to sort of help them wrap it up a little bit. Or if things are stagnating, there are certain things as a drummer that we do to kick it up a bit. We change the dynamics, right? Bring it down. Sometimes as guitar players playing pretty wild and, you know, it really would make sense to bring it down a little bit and the drummer can kind of send a, a, a cue for that. But the whole topic of music... And integrating music itself into couple therapy is one that I've written about. I have a paper that's out online, anyway, in the Clinical Social Work Journal on integrating music and other arts and the humanities into couple therapy. There's a great deal of neuroscience that supports those kind of techniques um, and bringing music in. Music, of course, we know, has been essential to... uh, bonding in, in, in relationships, but also in larger groups. Music has been very central in dealing with difficult times and in bringing hope and resilience and the strength to carry on. And I also, one of the things that I encourage a couple partners to do sometimes when they have different musical tastes is explore each other's tastes and get to know it more rather than just saying, "Ugh, I don't like that. And shutting the other person down. So it's, it's also a way into a person's culture of origin, uh, in working with cross-cultural couples, and so forth. So, boy, I could go on for a long time. I
0: thank you so much. You've certainly laid down the carpet for us today. Uh, real quickly, I mean, we have referenced the articles. If, if I want to find out more about working with last-chance couples or uh, we didn't really talk about today, your own way of integrating the therapeutic palette, What are some what are some great resources to follow up on this podcast if I like what I heard this hour?
1: last chance couple therapy articles called love in action actually speaking of integrating music that's a title of a uh, todd rundgren song from years ago um and uh i actually quote for four lines of the first verse of that song and it cost me 250 bucks to do that so
0: oh did like, it really i remember yeah. that the article starts off with that yeah so wow uh,
1: yeah you have yeah. to pay for that yeah. you can't just quote right um so <laughs> so that article i have a book uh, with norton Uh, I have a contract with Norton, I'm writing this book right now, called uh, Bringing Couples Back from the Brink, Last Chance Couple Therapy. I'm actually working on another book with Routledge called The Complete Guide to Couple Therapy from Happy to Last Chance Couples, that will be coming out more more towards the end of 2021. You know, I've written a lot about integration, as you know, 2009 article on the therapeutic palette, and that's in the Clinical Journal of uh, Social Work gives you
0: some resources. And That's plenty, yeah. Uh, ones. We will have you back and we'll talk okay. about music and, and psychotherapy, but thank you so much. Great talking to you, Peter. I know our listeners have a lot to take away from this hour. Well, I'm glad. Thank you. So brings a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. I uh, certainly learned a lot, and if you're working with couples, those are some skill sets and some ideological principles you have to be fully armed with when presented with couples with low or no motivation to do the work. Peter referenced a lot of great resources in his talk. Let's just go over those really quickly. First of all, for all things Peter Frankel, you want to go to peterfrankelphd.com. That's p-e-t-e-r-f-r-a-e-n-k-e-l-phd.com. Peterfrankel.com can also get a hold of him. As you can see, he's very accessible. He will certainly uh, engage with listeners that are interested in learning more about his work. It's frankelorama at gmail.com. No one is going to steal that one, Peter. frankelorama at gmail.com. And at his website, he can go to publish articles, and this is great. On the article, free downloads of Love in Action, An Integrative Approach to Last Chance Couple Therapy. That's the 2019 article for family process that we talked a lot about it's required reading in my couples therapy course and it gives you all of the background that we went over today in our interview also one maybe more for your clients sync your relationships save your marriage four steps to getting back on track he has two sample chapters for download there and from 2009 the therapeutic palette a guide to choice points in integrative couple therapy which is Peter's integrative model, the therapeutic palette. We love hearing from you. That's how this topic came, working with last chance couples. You can also go back into the archives and hear our interview with the great Bill Doherty, who came up with discernment counseling, along with his colleague, Steve Harris, also a former guest on the show. And you can listen to, to Bill's interview. where We focus more on Bill's contributions to the field, but the pioneering interviews with our thought leaders, as well as very topical interests that impact all couple and family therapists, that's what we do here on the podcast. And like I said, I get our topics by listening to listener feedback. Get old of me, send me an email. It's info at elikaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Follow the conversation on Twitter. The AMFT's handle is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Download us wherever you get your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcasts. Please, if you would, leave a review and a star rating. Help us rise through the ranks of mental health podcasts. You listen to these podcasts ad-free to get all the constraints out of the way. Pass on news you can use. So please... Support us as we support you in these challenging times to be Americans, to be couple and family therapists. Until next time, my friends, stay safe and stay systemic.